Hey everyone, thanks for watching. If you'd like to see more Hemisync podcasts, such as Episode 8 with Dean Radin, podcasts that aren't necessarily associated with any particular Hemisync product, but simply feature fascinating guests and subjects associated with the frontiers of consciousness research and understanding, please consider joining our exclusive Patreon page and get some great discounts on Hemisync products in the bargain. Thanks for watching. We are joined today by Tim Freak, a prominent author of several books. You can find them on um, Amazon.com or on TimFreak.com. Uh, Tim is also a stand-up philosopher, um, as opposed to you know what you might typically hear of as a stand-up comedian. Tim does philosophy. Um, I, I hope you don't encounter too many hecklers. Um, <laughs> but Tim is also um, producing with us a uh, hemisync track called Deep Connection, a partner meditation. And so we are very pleased to be joined by Tim today. Um, and so, Tim, I think it'd be helpful for the, for the uh, listeners to just kind of get some background about your overall kind of view of um, philosophy, the process of enlightenment. Um, I understand that you don't really see enlightenment as an ultimate journey, but, you know, this is really kind of a process of continuous personal awakening that we're going through. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's where I've ended up, Garrett. I mean, like, I, I've been involved in spirituality all my life and i'm getting older now and so we're talking you know 50 years of mm. pretty much being involved in this and so i've been through lots of phases and like most people the first place i came to was the a lot of the eastern stuff and the idea of some ultimate moment where you just kind of click and you're over the line and, and my own experience of being around a lot of so-called enlightened people was not that and it made me question things and really look at my own experience. And where I've ended up, I think, is much more positive and interesting, which is that there's a deep part of all of us which you could say is already enlightened, if you like, that it's already what it is. And then there's this other part of us which is on a journey. So Tim's on a journey, and then Tim can wake up increasingly to this other part, this deeper essence which is in all of us. Uh, and this is the experience which traditionally calls is is called awakening. I call it being deep awake. And I don't think there's any limit on it. I think there can be, I think what we're talking about is an evolutionary process, which just goes on and on and on. And it's really what we all experience as maturation. So there are moments, like there was a moment where when I was little, like everyone, I couldn't walk and then I kind of could walk. And then, then mostly now I can walk, although sometimes I still fall over. And it's a bit like that. It feels like the, the awakening is not some click and once and for all. It's like, oh, you become familiar with a deeper state. And then that, that becomes familiar and mostly you can find it. And then there's a deeper state waiting. And then you start looking at that. And then, oh, and then there's a deeper state waking. And, and you, the, the journey, the personal journey of evolution just keeps going. So there's, there's a line in one of my books, I'll just throw this at you because I really love it, which I really like, where it said, uh, so the, the, the bad news is there's no arriving. But the good news is there's no arriving. Because who'd want to arrive, actually? Right. Who'd want that kind of, you're done, it's finished, you know, you've got the badge. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a couple very interesting ideas there. I, I think the first is that, 
you know, even people that have had some level of awakening or realization, even very deep realization, um, they're still just people. And, you know, I think you and I have both been around lots of people like that and have had some of that, you know, happen to us personally. Um, and so that's an important point. You know, we want to kind of hold these people up on a pedestal, but they're still just people. Um, and then the other point that you make there, um, which is um, escaping me for just a second here. Um, so, sorry, what was that final point that you made there to finish? Um, I was saying about arriving. Uh, arriving, yes, thank you. Yes. So, you know, once you arrive, I mean, there's nothing left, right? There's nothing to be curious about. You know, when you approach life from a state of not knowing, it's a lot more interesting, right? I mean, at the risk of jumping in very deep very quickly, yeah. which I, I do tend to do and like to do, you know, what's going on here really is two completely uh, opposite views of what spirituality is. There's a traditional view, which is nearly ubiquitous and arrives like 2,500 years ago, maybe, maybe before, and has stayed. Um, and that's the idea that we're in a fallen state. This is an illusion. We're here by mistake. The body's a tomb. Uh, the sensual body traps you. The individual self is the ego, which is your enemy. The, it, it's, it's all a mistake. And spirituality is about waking up from this error and getting back to a state of perfection, finding the oneness, rejecting the world. Uh, and that's a ubiquitous myth. So with that, the idea is once you've seen through it, you're done. You're free. And then, you know, in a lot of the Eastern traditions with re reincarnation, you don't have to come back here again because it's such a bad place to be. That's on the one hand. I don't find that very attractive. I, I, I think it's an, it's an outdated view. There's obviously a lot of wi wisdom in there as well, but that bit's outdated. The other philosophy, which is coming through now, of which I'm definitely a part, is an evolutionary philosophy. This isn't a mistake. This is an evolving process, 13.8 billion years of evolution, in which the, the, the universe is coming to know itself through us, so that there's not some perfect state we've fallen from, there's somewhere we're reaching up to in the evolutionary process. So there's no limit. Mm -hmm. there's no, it's not a disease we're recovering from. It's a creative process we're engaged in, and our individuality isn't the problem, it's the vehicle through which the universe is waking up. Yeah. And so it's, it's, the, it's, a, it's turning that around, and this negative spirituality turns into this positive evolutionary spirituality. Mm -hmm. So that's fascinating. And before we go too much into that process of evolution, um, it might be helpful just to understand a little bit about what your background with this stuff is. You know, what, what influenced you and contributed to your arriving at this kind of current view of reality? Uh, well, I had a I had a spontaneous awakening when I was very young, um, 12, 12 and a half. And I think looking back now, it was just I was a very curious child, a bit strange, I think, um, very uh, obsessed with the mystery of existence. It felt like the whole of existence was some giant question and that therefore there must be a giant answer. And with the, that childish naivety, I was just looking for the giant answer. And I think for whatever reason, one day the giant answer came and got me. And the giant answer wasn't a lot of words. It was a direct experience of something that I'd never had before, uh, which was this enormous love, this sense of 
sense of uh, communion with everything, this oneness, this sensual aliveness, and this deep feeling of confidence in the goodness of existence, which made a huge impression on me. I was just sitting on a hill looking at you know, all the people in the, my little hometown going about their business, and this happened. And that crystallized the whole process for me because then I found myself going, what the hell was that? Because it didn't last for, I don't know how long it lasts, but it didn't last for very long, I don't suppose. So then it became like, what was that? How can I find it again? And what I found was, oh, you can find it in all sorts of places, usually when you least expect it. I'm like, you know, like, oh, where, where? and then bang, it would happen. And then bang, it would happen. And I'm with this person, it would happen. And I started looking for people who could help me understand it. So I went and lived in a friary and uh, I kind of ran away to one when I was very young and, and almost became a friar twice. Um, I studied Zen with the Sufis and I read a huge amount of books. I studied philosophy and meditation, long periods in meditation, psychedelic drugs, shamanic um, uh, power plants, all of that, anything I could do. And what I found was, hey, you can get back to this place through all of this. So my influences have been huge, which is why I've written all these books on all these different traditions to get me to the place where if I felt ready, maybe 15 years ago, maybe a bit more now, where it felt like, okay, what's my contribution to this? And my contribution, I think, is to try and develop a spirituality for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been trying to do. And so how old were you when you had that first experience? The first one was 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 about twelve and a half. Twelve and a half. Yeah, wow. yeah. And it's interesting because I wrote afterwards. I when I came, I came down this hill. I had this big experience, and I wrote about it. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a play which was very influenced by it. And I've still got it. My 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 dear mum died. I found it in a box of her collected stuff she kept for me. As she, you know, as mums do. And it was really amazing, Garrett, because I looked at the last pages, and it could have been from one of my books. It was this writing about love, and it was it could have still been there. So there was something directly imprinted on me um, when I was very young, and the love has stayed the same. The, my understanding has changed and changed and changed, and it's evolving now faster than ever. But the direct experience of love that happens in the deep awake state, in some way, just feels always the same. Yes. It's just this enormous embrace that just happens. And so this feeling of love, dissolving in love, and the inherent goodness of it. Yeah. Now, these are kind of hallmarks of these types of awakening experiences that, you know, we've all kind of heard about. Um, and you sort of went through this process where you went to a friary, you were a Zen monk, which is very much um, within sort of the vein of what you previously described as this mindset where you have to kind of push back from the world, reject yeah. the world. Yeah. But instead, you've decided to dive into the world, right? I mean, you're married, you have a you have a daughter, I believe. Two, two kids, yeah. Two yeah. kids. You work in the world. Yeah. What made you convinced that it was possible to have a quote-unquote normal life? <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I certainly grew up with this idea, you know, that if you were a, what they call in in the east they call a householder. Yeah. You know, it's like, if you if you if you're a real seeker, you become a monk. Yeah. If you're not up to that, you can be a householder. It's like, yeah. mm, oh well, you know, you're not quite, you know, you're never going to get there in this lifetime. But you know, never mm -hmm. mind. And I bought into all of that, 
um, for a while, but there was always this tension in me between different parts of me. I've always been a creative artist as well. I used to be a musician for a long time before as a writer. So there was a pull into the world and a pull out from the world, and they would be at war with each other. And at some point, I synthesized them into one thing. And that kind of changed. And the, but the big moment, the big moment where I knew this world rejecting thing had ended was the birth of my daughter. Mm -hmm. I just seeing that little baby in my in my arms or just seeing her eyes open and look into mine for the very first time. Um, anyone who's had kids, I'm sure, can relate. I just felt like this is not a meaningless illusion. Right. And no one is going to tell me that the individuality does not matter. Mm hmm because this individual matters. It matters more than anything in the universe. This isn't some mistake. Mm -hmm. This is a beautiful, meaningful process we're in. And right. I would do anything for this individual. And that, that made me feel like, oh, this love brings me into the world, not mm -hmm. out from it. It demands to be shared. So belatedly, I have made my way in. I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a natural to the world in uh -huh. a way. Um, I've lived all my life on the edge. Um, but I am slowly making my way in. And now I feel like, yeah, I would like to engage. I'd like to engage with the mainstream as much as possible to try and bring this message. That's why I want, I want to synthesize spirituality and science so much, mm -hmm. because it feels like I really want to engage with the powerful intellectual currents that are, exist now and go, there is something in this ancient wisdom which is incredibly valuable. There's a lot of it we need to leave behind. But there's something at the heart of it mm -hmm. which is more incredibly important, and we need to find a new way of understanding it. Yes. And the thing at the heart of it really is this state that we're describing, right? This yeah. You call it the yeah. deep awake state, yeah. um, which we've already kind of described. But there's also this sort of quiet and calm confidence that comes with it, and, and this deep, deep knowing, or this ability to know. Yeah, it, it, I, that's that's one of the qualities again, which I, I I experience and and which you hear mentioned in the literature all the time. I wrote about the Gnostic Christians at one stage, and they call it a gnosis, which means knowing or knowledge. And in the East, it's gnana. It's the same word. Mm -hmm. And again, it's this knowing. And then there's what do you know? And it's so it's almost impossible to say what it is you know. Yeah. But if you had to, it, when I when I want to say what I know, it sounds so childish. And yet it's the deepest thing I know. Mm. And it, so, so one of the phrases which came to me one day when I thought, how can I, what is this? What is it that I, and it's so important to me. And the phrase that came to me, Garrett, was, it was sound so naive, but it, it was, oh, it's, it's that life is essentially good, despite everything, despite all the very real suffering, which I'd never deny, yeah. despite that, or as well as that, essentially, this is good. Yeah. Life is good. And death is safe. And what really matters is love. Yes. And so what I've been doing with philosophy is trying to take something which sounds so childish and naive and give it the intellectual um, support, which goes, I know this sounds like something, some sort of woo-woo wishful thinking, mm -hmm. but actually in this deep state, this this arises, and here is the here is the good intellectual reasons why this is true. Yeah. While it's while it's more than just, wouldn't it be nice if this is real? Right. So you know that's an important point too. I mean, you're including the vulnerable, difficult parts of ourselves, the wounding, as part of this goodness. Yeah, 
I, I think, you know, I'm underlying what I do in my philosophy and, and in my practices too. The reason that what the, the on the CD we're doing together, it's a it's for it's for two, mm-hmm. is because is this what I call paralogical thinking, which is just about opposites. So it's both and thinking. So not this or this, but this and this. Yeah. So right at the beginning, when you asked me about about awakening, I said, look, or enlightenment, I said, it feels to me, look, there's part of me which is on a journey, and then there's part of me which is just the being of everything. My deep being is the being of everything, and it's not doing anything. It's just being. And they, and which am I? I'm both. Now, what happens mm-hmm. with traditional spirituality is it goes, oh, you're really the deep thing, yeah. and, the, and the superficial thing is in the way. It feels to me like, no, no, it's much more interesting than that. Yeah, I'm both of these. And Tim, the part that's evolving, the part that's awakening, it is, you know, he's a mixture of things. Hmm. There's stuff about him which, you know, I hope when people meet him, he's, they like. But hmm. if they hung around for too long, you know, if they had to live with him all the time, like I do, hmm. they'd see other things in him. Hmm. And as you said earlier about so-called enlightened people, if you hang around with them long enough, you see that in them too. Yeah. So it feels like let's just get used to the fact that to be a soul that's evolving means you constantly realize you've missed something. You've been unconscious. You, it's always finding more. Mm-hmm. So part of that is being, okay, let's be – what I do with people at my my retreats more than anything is go, let's just relax about our separate individuality. Let's accept that it's mixed. Let's be okay with the fact that let's, that we're vulnerable, that that we're that part of us is wounded. Let's be okay with that because that's what it is to evolve. And then when you're okay with that – this deeper part just starts to become obvious. Yeah. And then you both, then you, then you, then both are happening at once. So am I correct in understanding that it's being okay with the, with the vulnerable parts that allow for this paralogical experience really of being both this kind of unchanging eye and the small eye, which is yeah. Garrett or Tim. I think so. I think yeah. if we allow that vulnerability, it really helps. Mm-hmm. It, but even even with that, it's you know maybe I can even with the vulnerability, it's really important to have this paralogical approach because sometimes that then sounds like I'm saying just go out into the world and be open and vulnerable, and I'm yeah. not. Right. You can't do that. If you do that, you'll get hurt. You know, I mean, uh, the, the example I use just because it makes me laugh every time I think about it is my daughter, who's now mm. 18 and just left for university. Mm. And I'm not with her going, darling, just go out into the world and, and open up. And just, <laughs> like, <"Whoa." laughs> no, no, no. I, I want her to know how to protect herself and have boundaries and to be an independent, separate woman. Yeah. But what I don't want and, and is her to be get so stuck in that that she's like now in like in, in behind a, a prison. Right. That she can open up, close up. You know, it's like, ah, hello. Oh, dangerous. Right. Ah, wonderful. So that, that there's the facility to be open whenever we can, but that still doesn't mean we won't need to protect ourselves from time to time. And that's the paralogical understanding again. Right. And so there are still these boundaries that we have to have that keep us safe. But we yeah. can respect them and kind of um, enforce them. And enforcement doesn't feel like the right word, but we can kind of maintain them from an authentic place that yeah. is informed, I guess, by the big eye. And not so, so one of much, the things, sorry, yeah. I was going to say one of the things which 
you know, when I started off with this, when I was younger, it just felt like, oh, it's just the love. Just find the love mm. and everything will just be like, just be in the love. That's all you need. And like many people, I soon discovered that actually, despite my love for John Lennon, love is not all you need. Mm. Um, you also need, well, loads of things, actually. But one of the things you need is wisdom, which is how to love. Now, the love just arises. But how do you love? You know, I mean, my, my father, who I love dearly and who loved me very much and was a fantastic dad in many ways, was also a heavy drinker. Mm. Now, there were times when that was a problem where it, it would have seemed like, you know, what he wanted was for me to give him, to go and get him booze that he couldn't get himself. And he was very upset with me and thought I didn't love him because I refused to do that. But I needed the wisdom. To, if you've got kids, you know this. Sometimes the wisdom means the loving thing is to go no and for them to hate you and for you to, you to go no, go upstairs and them to hate you even more. And so love isn't being nice. Love, love, it's not always obvious what the loving thing to do is. So we need love, wisdom. And the, the wisdom is what it takes, is what we're always learning. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm still learning it all the time. I don't know about you. It just feels like constantly. But how do, how do you, how can I be the wisest, most loving person in this situation? And it's a constant challenge. And that's the evolutionary process. It is. It's a real challenge. Um, <clears throat> so let's uh, get a bit more into the how-to of this. Uh, for yeah. folks that are listening, um, that uh, are potentially curious about what's on the CD that we produced, yeah. and this track that we produced, how do you actually kind of get through this small eye, this sort of story of ourselves into this deeper eye, into the deeper mystery of who we yeah. are. So, so the first thing with my approach is, as you've already said, Garrett, is like, don't fight it. Mm -hmm. Don't think it's going to go away and don't think it's the enemy. It's not. Love it. Just let it be. Don't expect it to be perfect. Just let it, let it be. Now, I don't mean let it be like, I mean, let it, it's certainly in meditation, let it be. I mean, in the life process, we work on ourselves. We need to be challenging to ourselves sometimes, all of that too. But in the meditation, it's like, oh, just, just let that be and then find the other pole. So what I lead, and I do this on the, um, the CD that you've beautifully done um, to you know, guide people with these, which is to, to say, look, the one way is to come right into your senses. Because when you come into your senses, you're right into the moment. So really listening or breathing is excellent too. When I went, when I went to the friary the second time, I, I was just spent my whole time just in my breath. And I, what I discovered, I, did, I had a whole year of meditation and I wasn't friary, but after. And what I discovered was breathing is the most delicious thing you can do if you really focus on it. So here's a focus. You can take your attention, you put it in your breath or in listening or a sensation, and instantly you're in a different state. And then what you can do with that then is put your attention on your deep being. Mm -hmm. So then, and this is what we do in the, on the CD, is go, okay, now just let it sink back into that presence, which is always there. One of the ways that I like to point it to people sometimes is go, you know that bit, you know the part of you that feels exactly the same now as when you were 18? The bit that hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter how, you know, I'm just about to be 60. God knows how. And it just feels like, yeah, but I'm the same as when I was eight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That bit. That, bit. that mm -hmm. bit that doesn't change. Why doesn't it change? Because there's nothing to change. It just is being. 
Mm-hmm. Tim's changed completely, as it's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that hasn't. Yeah. And so with the meditation, you can just sink back, and there's this huge, safe, spacious presence holding everything in it like a loving embrace. And like everything, the more you do that, the more familiar it becomes. Yeah. And so as this happens, I mean, there are other things that kind of happen with it that you start to recognize, right? And so the space becomes familiar. You know, maybe there's some relaxation in the physical body that's, that starts to take place. Definitely. That's very, I mean, I think that is, uh, that's definitely the case. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that you can, again, you know, I'm all for embracing the body. And, right. and and just coming into your sensation of your body, like your breath, immediately, even you just saying it to me now, mm-hmm. I'm just aware that my body just went, oh, let's relax a bit more. Yeah. And, 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 there, and, and that's, again, part of the, for me, the new 21st century spirituality is not about, oh, the body, oh, bad. Yeah. It's actually going, the body, enjoy it. Just, yeah. like, don't miss it. Just to, I mean, I'm moving my body very slightly here when I'm talking to you, and it's delicious. How lucky to have a body and to be alive in it. Uh, that's, a, that's a great gift. Yeah. And that, can, that allows you to wake up, too. Personally, I kind of think things start to get away from us whenever we fall out of a calm, relaxed state. And we often don't realize how tense we are in day-to-day life, how much we're holding. Yeah. Um, when you <laughs> can so- kind of relax into things a bit and allow things, you know, it's possible to be the small I, which, as you say, never goes away. But it can start to relax a little bit. Yeah. You know, your reactions your, or your, your actions in the world, they become less emotional, less reactionary. Because it's like this big eye is kind of always on background, right? It's sort of always there and you're more aware of it. And, and that, that, that changes everything. Beautifully put. Yeah, it does. So that's the, that's the, that's the thing is that as you, if, if you allow whatever you're in, become conscious of the depths, then what you're in just changes of itself. Mm-hmm. You can't help do that. And you start to become aware of just how much you're holding in your body or how much your mind is spinning. Mm-hmm. And you can let them calm down a bit. And, mm-hmm. and as you said so beautifully, we, we're, life is a lot better right. when we do that. And so you sort of call this lucid living, right? Which I think is a great way to describe it. What, what is lucid living about? Lucid living was a, when I, um, I wanted to try and express the essence of all these ancient mystical traditions in a new language. And one of the images they use a lot is that life is like a dream. Yeah. So, so we have this idea of lucid dreaming, yes. where you're having a dream, but you're dreaming consciously. Yes. And I wanted to suggest, look, we can do the same with living. We can have lucid living, where you're living a life, but you're doing it consciously. So when you're dreaming, if you've had a lucid dream, you know, you're mm-hmm. in the dream, but you're also not in the dream. You're also aware that you're the dreamer. You're, you're the presence. Yeah. So you know you're dreaming. And it feels very similar with this awakened state. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm Tim. I'm in the dream. I, you know, sometimes it's like to, you know, I may have a really easy day or a difficult day. I get bad news. Some, you know, all that stuff. And then there's this, like a dream, it can be a, a wish-fulfilling day or it could be a nightmare day. Mm-hmm. And I can be aware that, oh, I'm actually also this presence, which is like the dreamer. Yeah. I'm like this presence which just is. And then I'm living lucidly. Yes. And I mean I'm aware of these two just like when I'm dreaming, there's like, ah, oh, there's me in the dream, and then there's there's me outside the dream. Mm-hmm. And the same here. 
Yeah, I mean, lots of folks that come to us or that use Hemisync are into lucid dreaming. Um, right. And I think it's actually more interesting to start with lucid living. You know, how lucid are you in your day-to-day life? And if you train lucidity in your day-to-day life, it becomes much easier um, to then become lucid when you're in different states of consciousness, including sleep. Yeah. Yeah, I think that too. I, I really do. Um, and it, it, the word, you know, training is, is really good. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm loving the, doing this CD with you because mm. it feels like, look, one of the things which sometimes I see people come to my events, they have huge experiences. Mo- nearly everybody does. Um, not because I'm sort of some magician, just simply because if you put people in the right space and you do some of the exercises which are on the CD, mm-hmm. nearly everyone goes. Phew. Yeah. And, but what can easily happen is that, you know, for a week, two weeks, three weeks, sometimes a few months, people are in a, wow, they're in the love and they can find it so much easier and they're really excited. But if they don't keep returning to it consciously, it will go, of course, like anything. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it feels, you know, it's like eating. It's like, it's no good having one big meal and then going, hey, I'm hungry again. Yeah. It's like, of course you'll be hungry again. Right. The soul's like that. You've got to feed it all the time. And, right. and, 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 not, and not a bit like eating again. You know, you, it would be such a shame if every time you sat down to eat, you went, oh, I've got to eat again, haven't I? Damn it. You know, but I, <laughs> it's like, that, you know, maybe there's sometimes, but, you know, you want to sit down and go, oh, lovely, yeah. this looks good. I mean, right. this should be like that with meditation. It should be, oh, lovely. A bit yeah. of, you know, I, I wanted to have this phrase. I, I, I must start using it more. Where it felt like I've got to stop stop talking about deep awake meditation, yeah, and start talking about deep awake indulgence. Yeah, have a bit of indulgence. Indulge yeah. yourself yeah. with some deep awake exercises for ten minutes, twenty minutes, an hour, and just really ooh, enjoy. That's a great way to put it because I think for a lot of people, meditation or a daily practice becomes something they just they just have to do. It becomes banal, like brushing your teeth. And if the practice isn't alive, if you're not really feeling it, it's yeah. an indication that you need to change something. Because you, the- yeah. So, so I mean, unless you're into S and M, discipline is not yeah. going to work. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's like for most people, you call it a discipline, and right. you just killed it dead. It's like yes. school. It's like you know, that's your spiritual discipline. Whoa, right. Know. It's like no, it's an indulgence. It's right. fun. It's it's. It's your chance to dive into the depths of reality. Yes. You know, wow. And how, how, how cool is that? Yeah. I mean, daily living should really be the same way, right? And I think this idea that life, you know, waking reality is much more dreamlike than we appreciate um, kind of helps with that. If, you know, if, if you can approach it from that mindset. And I think your idea of paralogical thinking also helps with that. Definitely. Um, because reality isn't, you know, quite what you might take it to be. There's maybe something else there. And, um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, I think and it, and it starts, it turns up, doesn't it, Garrett? I yeah. mean, the more, what, what, if the more you, if you live lucidly, the, the dreamlike quality of life becomes more obvious. Magic starts happening. Right. I mean, I think most people who, who experience awakening suddenly start going, oh, hang on. You know, those, those strange synchronicities and little glitches in the matrix feeling, you know, that right. st- the life responds to you. Right. And so you can start to see that, 
you know, there's both good and bad kind of in in everything. And we tend to either be oriented towards either seeing the good or seeing the bad, but there can be both and that's okay. Um, and there's I a, think that's the, that's the nature of it. That's the, that's the great paralogical insight for me. Right. It's that, that, that there is good and bad in everything, which yes. means when terrible things happen, you can find some wisdom in it. You know, and, and, and actually with just about everyone I know, probably everyone I know, often their deepest wisdom has come from the very worst things mm-hmm. because you can find it hidden away in the middle of it. Yeah. That's, just knowing that is amazing. Yes. Hmm. But there's something I want to return to because we talked about the exercises and I talked about being the deep awake, but I'd like to say something about the idea of doing this with each other. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I would say that's the, the, obviously with the CD we've done, that's absolutely what that CD is about. Yes. You, know, you can do it on your own, but is, is doing it with other people. And what happened to me, I guess about 20 years ago now, was I was leading people in meditations, um, which were great. And then one day I, I just got people to meditate on each other. Yeah. And the response was so incredible. I did it at the end of a retreat. And I always remember this guy just going, why didn't we start with that? Oh, my God. You know, it's like, <laughs> wow, what just happened? Yeah. And then I realized oh my God, then I developed all sorts of different techniques that we could meditate on each other. And the two simplest and probably the, still the most powerful are on the CD, which is Closing your eyes and listening to each other. Mm-hmm. So, and 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 the other is opening your eyes and just looking at each other. Yeah. And if you're not used to doing things like that, that can feel a bit strange at first. But very quickly, you relax into a state, and then you become aware. Oh, that that what you call the little eye and the big eye, the two aspects: your deep being and the, and the individual being, the universal and the individual. I'm connecting with that in you right now. Yeah. I'm connecting with. I'm connecting with Garrett and I'm connecting with the whole universe appearing as Garrett. Yeah. This huge oneness. And so I'm the oneness connecting with the oneness through the two-ness. Right. And, and if you just sit in that space and be aware of that, I don't know, honest, honest, I, I don't know anything which transforms consciousness so profoundly right. as doing that. Right. And, 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 and it's no surprise to me. It's like, what's the most amazing thing in, in life? Right. It's another being, right? It's it's astonishing that I'm a conscious being, but now I'm meeting another one. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a kind of miracle, really. And if you really see it or you really hear it, you enter into the sound and connect through the sound with the listener, with the speaker, mm-hmm. and you do the same with sight it, in a very simple way. Yeah, it's massively transformative. It can really take you into the deep wake state. Yes. And so, you know, this is fascinating to me. So this is a partner meditation and you, you sort of start them off by inviting them to kind of sense themselves. I mean, they're, they're sort of with their practice partner, but they're sensing themselves first. So kind of getting in touch with their, um, deeper eye. Yeah. Um, and then at, at some point you ask them to open their eyes and it turns into an eye gazing exercise. Yeah. And so, this can be, you know, I want to caution people. So the first time you start to do this, this can be intensely uncomfortable. And so I have my own theories as to why that is, but why do you think it can be so uncomfortable initially? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, I've done this with literally thousands of people all over the world. 
Uh, one of the interesting things, Gary, is I'd say it's a lot less uncomfortable for people now than it used to be. Yeah. So that's interesting. It's changed. When I started doing it, nearly everyone went, oh, God, that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Now most people are don't feel that. Okay. Um, uh, actually. Um, but obviously some do, and we're all individual. And I, I certainly always encourage people to just be comfortable with whatever, you know, be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. If they feel like this is a bit weird, it is a bit weird. Yeah. And meditation's weird in itself, isn't it? Just sitting yeah. with your eyes closed or something, it's, it's, an, it's an odd thing to do. Yeah. So to be okay with it. And why do we feel it? I think there's all sorts of reasons, but a very common one is that we feel we're, that, that, we're go that someone's going to look inside us and see the part of us that we don't like. Mm -hmm. They're see us, and we're, we 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 don't want to be seen. Right. Um, and the thing which I always want to say is that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, actually, the private parts of you are private. Mm -hmm. No one no one gets access to those. And actually, if you relax into it very quickly, what people experience is an immense beauty in the person they're looking in. Yeah, and what I always want to happen, and and off, you know, usually it does, is I want people to see that you know that beauty you're just seeing in that person, that's the beauty the other person is seeing in you. Mm -hmm. And when you get there, and and there's something, and it's not like a, it's a, it's what the depth of it is. You also see, oh, here's another human being like me who's vulnerable, who's yeah. had hard times, who knows suffering. Of course they do. Who doesn't? Yeah. We're in this together, and through that, this other person who may be completely different, maybe a you know different type of person, different sex, different age, doesn't. But whoever they are, there is this presence looking back at me. Yeah, and it's beautiful. Yes, and so I think the point you made there about the fear of vulnerability is the main reason why people are uncomfortable with intense eye, um, eye contact yeah. um, and perhaps they don't experience it so much in your workshop because you've expertly led them into a deep state where yes. their defenses are down a little bit. Definitely. Um, but generally when we relate to people, it's through many veils, you know, many yeah. layers of defense. Yeah. Um, and so when that's dropped, it's kind of like a brand new experience. I mean, it, it is an intimate authentic way of relating to another human being that many people are not familiar with. You're definitely right. And, and, and one of the things that I'm hoping with the CD that people will find is that because we have this, because it's, they haven't got me, not a retreat, but there's two things. One is you've got this, this period of preparation mm -hmm. where you're coming into yourself and therefore there, and there's a, there's a great sense of confidence that can come just from sinking into your deep self. So you're ready. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, you know, the magic of the music and the hemisync, which enables you. It, it, what, the music's magic, isn't it? And, 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 mm -hmm. and the hemisync definitely is. So it enables you to to relax into a held space, an enchanted mm -hmm. space. This isn't normal life. Mm -hmm. This is an, this is a magic space yeah. where you can actually allow this to happen, mm -hmm. and and you can be held and you are safe. Yeah, yeah, and. What do you think it is that you're, I don't know quite how to put this, but what, what do you think it is that you're held by? Um, because you can have this sense, I think, that you're both sharing the same field, for lack of a better word. And so it's sort of like you're holding yourself. It's sort of like the other person is holding you. 
And it's also sort of like you're holding each other. And it's also sort of like there's something bigger holding the both of you. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I think what happens is you stu- you find a place where there's two and w- you're two and one at the same time. Yeah. And the place where you're one, there's a communion of souls. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're one thing, uh, just like you said, and that's what's holding. That's what's holding. So the one is holding the two. Yeah. And it's and that's a beautiful place to be. And I think the other really interesting thing about this type of relating is. You know, what, so, you know, the Greeks had many words for love, right? But I think one of the ways that we feel loved is by being seen. By being seen, by being heard in a way that is non-judgmental yeah. um, and accepting. Yeah. And so this exercise kind of invites the listeners to step into that. Uh, beautifully put exactly right i think the biggest thing one of the big things that happens when i do these um soul to soul connection these deep connection exercises together with people is that is that is people are starved of loving attention we all are and i mean what's the most precious thing you can give somebody actually the most precious thing what's the one thing which is so close up to what you are it's your attention Mm mm-hmm that's why what is why you know kids that you know yeah. they want that they want this they want this but really the deepest things every right. parent knows what they really want is your attention that's the why love. people grown adults are starved for likes on social media you know yeah. that's that's what they're after yeah that's right and so if we can give each other that it's immensely affirming yeah and there's a, an exercise where i on on the cd where we we listen to each other saying i am and you just hear that I am-ness, and you connect and affirm it. And then I get people to say their name. Yeah. And it's really interesting, Garrett, because I'm, you know, a lot of people, when their name comes, that's like, oh, my name. And right. at, at once it can be almost like shame of the name. Yes. Sometimes. I, I'm embarrassed. I, I, you know, and the spirit, you can really see that spirituality is back a bit like, oh, no, I'm just in my, the I am. I don't want the name. Right. You know, it's like, that's it. It's like, and then you get it, and then you yeah. realize that you're affirming each other. Yeah. It's like, and then when you hear somebody go, I hear you, Tim. Right. And it's like, you suddenly feel heard. Yes. It's like somebody is going, no, no, I don't just hear you, anyone. I hear you, Tim. Yes. And, oh, I hear you, Garrett. And it's like, oh, right, okay. Here is someone connecting not just with the universe, but with me. Yes. And that's hugely important. It hits you right in the heart. It hits you beautiful, right in the heart. Yeah, 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 it opens the heart. That's yeah. exactly. Uh, I think this has been a really good discussion of the exercise. Is there anything else we should cover on it before we uh, move on to? I, I think we really covered the the key things there. I, okay. I, uh, yeah, I th- it was lovely to go so deep into it. Actually. Yeah. No, that was. Uh, thanks for that, and uh, thanks for recording this with us, Tim. I think it'll be a great piece for people. Um, so that will conclude this portion of the podcast where we cover kind of Tim's. Um, or it's sort of an overview of Tim's philosophy and kind of the thinking behind the exercise that we've created together. Um, Tim's work is incredibly broad um, and it goes incredibly deep with a lot of profound insights. We're going to get into some of his more um, esoteric work when we get back. Um, And so stay tuned for that. Um, Hope you like it. So in... um 
before we dive into the esoterica, uh, I was hoping to understand from you whether or not, and I've watched some of your other pod, uh, podcasts too, it's still not totally clear to me. Do you, do you support this idea of idealism? You know, this idea that matter exists within consciousness um, and not the other way around? Uh, well, let me start off by saying that I'm not at all surprised if you're not, if it's not clear. Mm. Uh, and that's because uh, I'd say that for most of my books, the answer would be yes. Yeah. And that for my latest work, the answer is no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that's interesting. Because, yeah, because I think I've, I've changed my position. Oh, so this is part of the evolution. Yes. Oh, uh, interesting. So my understanding changes a lot, um, uh -huh. but there's been some big jumps, and this is one of them. So traditionally, there is the view that um, you know life is life is a dream within it's God's dream, and there's a great consciousness, and uh, God's fallen into the illusion of the dream and needs to wake up, and that's what happens when we awaken. Um, and so with my early books, with the idea of lucid living was very much like, ah, this is the S this captures the essence of this idea that all of this exists within consciousness, which of course, for each one of us subjectively, it's almost tautologically true. Everything I experience is an experience and therefore exists within consciousness. So for my, in my own observation, which is what interests me, yeah, oh look, everything's in consciousness. So I do, uh, I have written about that extensively, and it's interesting to me that, that many of the scientists held that view as well, a lot of very influential scientists, and, it's, a, and it, it's the spiritual view. However, um, as a paralogical thinker, someone who, who sees opposites as coexisting, it became obvious to me, oh, look, there's a kind of fundamental uh, battle philosophically going on here between subjectivists and objectivists, if you like, so that the objectivists are the materialists. What really exists is, is the object, and this consciousness has arisen from it. That would be like modern science tends to think that. And then there's the subjectivist, which is, no, what really exists is the subject, consciousness, and everything is an appearance within it. And I started thinking that probably neither are right, and that there was a different way of seeing it, which allowed me to integrate the two, um, and that that would be the secret to integrating a scientific understanding and a spiritual understanding. So my latest work around evolution and spirituality has been about going, oh, I think we need to get rid of this, this battle between these two ideas, neither of which really work, and we start need to understanding the whole thing in a, in a different way, and that's what I've been trying to do. Huh. So what does this model of reality look like? So I think the simple thing for me is to say, look, <clears throat> what is this? Well, I think this is the realization of potentiality. That's what it is in ever more emergent ways, meaning it's constantly happening in new ways built upon what's happened before. So what can we say about the evolution of the universe? 13.8 billion years from you know, which has got us from hydrogen and helium only to you and me having this conversation. It's a hell of a journey, isn't it? <laughs> the, 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 
gases could this, become us. This podcast is the net result of 13.8 billion yeah, years of Yeah, really. It's like, who, who would have ever thought <laughs> You're welcome. that hydrogen would have ended up having a conversation like this? But it yeah. did. Yeah. Now, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. But what that's been is a process in which it, it constantly new potentialities are, are being realized. Right. Constantly. Um, and, and it starts with very primitive ones. And then they become more and more complex because they build on what's happened before. Mm-hmm. And this moment again. So this moment, is it, it's never happened before, but it includes within it everything that's happened previously. Right. So every moment is creative. It realizes a new potentiality. And every moment is building on the whole flow of the whole universe. So for me, it's like, okay, so this is that's what this is. And the, the subject and the object are arising within it yeah. so that that everything, every individual thing, whether it's an atom or a tree or a human being, has got a relationship with the whole. And that relationship it has with the whole is its subjectivity. And the whole is the object, objectivity. And that they're both evolving. So that consciousness is actually emerged through the evolutionary process at a very high level of subjectivity. It's not the ground. It's not the ground like, like as spirituality used to think. And the reason that spirituality used to think that is because it, it, it had no concept of evolution. It just didn't have that idea. So there's a whole lot of things we could go into, which I think are wrong with both the extremes of the materialists and the, and the, and the idealists. Um, but I think that we can take this evolutionary model and you can actually see how the whole thing's evolving and consciousness is actually it's a it, it, the greatest things come last, not first. It didn't start with consciousness. It started with hydrogen. But it's arrived at consciousness. And now, not only that, it's arising at a place where we can be conscious of oneness. But this is a new thing. It's not where it started. It's where it's ending. So I guess under that model, then, you know, for any model, I guess I have to ask, okay, well, you know, what is the fundamental thing in this model? So yeah. in idealism, it's consciousness. Yeah. In materialism, it's matter. And... I can't quite grok what the fundamental factor is in what you're describing, okay. other than maybe it's time. No, I think it's, well, it's, it's, it's paralogical because it, you know, it's two things at once. But uh-huh. I would say the fundamental, the fundamental in the sense that you're using it there, the ground in that way is potentiality. So uh-huh. if I go back 13.8 billion years uh-huh. and let's imagine, you know, maybe this wasn't the first universe. Maybe there's things before this universe, highly likely. But let's imagine that that really was the beginning. Uh-huh. for now because that enables us to think about it if that's the case what can you say about what existed before the universe it's not really before because there's no time but what existed what was the where did the universe come from well yeah. i think if you start saying well it comes from consciousness yeah it's like well where where did you just get that from you just made that up you just took this whole big idea of god or consciousness or some thing and stuck it at the beginning uh-huh. and what does that what does that word even mean right does, is it conscious like we're conscious like right. you know i'm conscious now but i was unconscious last night when i was asleep you know what what does what does this word mean mm-hmm. that, we're, that this thing at the beginning yeah and that troubles me if you take matter as it it's like well matters what arises mm-hmm. matter is what what starts with well it's not even matter it's just information which will become matter so that's not it but surely we can say whatever this has come from it is the potentiality for this okay so that 
enables you to go, okay, so here's a polarity, which is there's a timeless, Mm -hmm. formless potentiality. Let's call it just being. Mm -hmm. Very close to the ancient ideas of spirit, actually. Just this essence. There's just being. The potentiality for everything. And it's timeless and and it's being. And then there's this flow of time through which being is realizing itself in ever more emergent ways. So there's time and the timeless. That's what this is. And when I look at the moment, especially when I'm lucid, I go, oh, yeah, that's what I'm actually experiencing. I'm experiencing a flow of time, which is always building on, building on, building what's been before. Right. Forms. And then I'm conscious of this presence of my being, Mm -hmm. which is formless, timeless, and has no qualities apart from being. And it's the potential to experience or be anything. Right. Okay, so you have potentiality at the heart of it. I think it's the two together, the timeless and the t- and time and the timeless, form and the formless. Okay. And, and, and they're right here, right now. It's not just like it happened then. It's like you have a look. It's right okay. here. I think I get what you're saying. Um, so I suspect that a supporter of idealism would probably argue that that is a semantic difference. But to your point, um, well, well, let me see if I understand your point. So it seems like your point is that in order for potentiality to become truly conscious or conscious of itself, it needs the element of evolution in the forms to then yeah, I'm, become I'm, conscious I'm really of saying, itself. Look, it's not, it's not, it's even more than that. It's going, look, the whole pro this is the realization of potentiality. That's uh-huh. what existence is. Uh-huh. And it's a continual creative process of, of realizing potentiality, realizing potentiality. And that's the, that's what reality is and part of that is it's reaching to the point where it's becoming more and more conscious of itself. Yes, it, you know that that it wasn't for a long time. Uh-huh. It was it was reading itself subjectively. You know, atoms are reading the universe electro electromagnetically or electrochemically. Um, plants are reading it through picking up light. Um, sensation starts to arise, kind of conscious, and then you get this whole thing of conscious sensation, and then this huge jump. Mm-hmm. into psyche soul mm-hmm. where you're conscious not only of the world but of images right thought and the whole the world of dreams and so it's constantly expanding right its realization that feels like what it, that's what it is gotcha and, and i don't think it is just semantic garrett and i'll okay. tell you why because if you because what happens especially with words like consciousness yeah. is people use them in wildly different ways they do and often and often people will use the same word in different and themselves in different ways, and then smuggle in things. Mm-hmm. So if consciousness really just means being, yep. let's call it being. Okay. Because then you haven't got the problem of consciousness is something where you know that you exist. Yes. So is this being at the front? Does it know that it exists? Mm-hmm. And, how? and if it does, why is it doing this? Right. Okay, so that is a very clear, clear elucidation right there, I think, of your position. So thank you for that. Um, and so... You started using the term psyche in there too, which um, I think you mean in a very specific context, right? In a very specifically defined way, which fits with kind of the Greek idea of psyche, um, right? Yeah, I'm. I'm a as a philosopher, my main uh, technique mm-hmm. is to look at the moment. Yes. So, like I said, when I look at the moment, I see, oh, look, there's a flow of time. And then there's a timeless present, which is witnessing it. That's what this moment is. Okay, so that's there's the parallelogy. When I look at time, I see, oh, 
it's both realizing the possible all the time mm -hmm. and it contains the past. So yes. it's the past and the possible. Okay, got it. So things like that. So when I've looked at the when I when I came to study Gnosticism in particular, mm -hmm. I came across this Greek idea of psyche, mm -hmm. which is the, it just means soul. Mm -hmm. So we're body and soul. It's an ancient idea, isn't it? You feel, you know in every tradition we're bodies and souls. And then people today go, yes, but is the soul real? Mm -hmm. You know, is that really there? And my reading of these ancient concepts is. They're actually just a statement of the obvious. That's that's all they are. They're a statement of something you can't possibly miss, which is every single one of us is experiencing two utterly different dimensions of experience all the time. There's the sensual world of the body where you're listening and touching and looking. And then there's a completely different state of experience, which is the psyche or the imagination or the mind. And all of these words are words for really the same thing from different linguistic roots. Mm -hmm. which You can call it whatever you like. The names really don't matter, and you don't want to get confused by the names. All you need to see is, oh, look, I am constantly experiencing two dimensions of reality, yeah. a sensual world, which is in space, and then the psyche, which doesn't exist in, in the material world. It's not made of matter. It's made of images, yeah. and that's the psyche or the soul. So are you a body and soul? Obviously you are. Mm -hmm. You couldn't possibly be having this conversation if you weren't. Yep. And that's what the ancient idea is. Right. And then we theologized it and confused it. And it's like, but if you get back to what it really means, right. it, it's simple and deep, actually. And so I think the interesting thing there is there are these themes that run throughout history. Yeah. And one of them is this idea of esoteric teachings, which are kind of the inner teachings and are generally communicated through myth um, or they're encoded in myth. And then there are the exoteric teachings that are kind of for the laity, for the masses. Um, and the exoteric teachings tend to be promulgated by the people who are literalists. And the esoteric teachings are promulgated by the Gnostics. Um, who tend to be suppressed throughout history by the former, the, the ones who take it all literally. Um, and this goes way, way back. And I think to trace it back to the beginning, at least um, you know, within your work, you kind of trace it back to the Hermetica, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, well, I think, like so many things, is that what you what you pointed to, and, and, you, and you said it really, is, is that he, essentially what we have here is something healthy, mm. which has become something unhealthy. Yeah. And, and the healthy thing is um, there are two levels of initiation in just about all of the ancient mystery schools, all, all of the spiritual schools. There's the first level where you come in, and when you've, you've got that, then you move on to the, the next level, which is, so there's the outer level. And then you get initiated to the inner level, which is the esoteric. And again, it's the we talked about in the previous podcast, we talked about awakening as a process of maturation. Mm -hmm. And that's what that's about. It's like, well, when you when you've matured enough to got this, you can do that. Mm -hmm. And here's a really, really simple way of getting, I think, what that's about, which is, you know, when I brought my kids up. I needed to give them rules as to how to behave. Don't steal people's toys or sweets or punch them or pinch them or whatever it was. 
and these are the rules. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted, I didn't want them to spend their whole life following the rules. What I wanted them was to get the reason for the rule. Yeah, was to get the love. Is to get oh, why would you do that to somebody? I wouldn't want to do that to somebody. And once they got that, they got the what it was really about. Yes. Well, the, the 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 religious tradition is these are the rules. You don't you don't know why they're the rules. They're just the rules. Yeah. But what you want to get is, oh, I see why that's the rule. Oh, okay, yeah, because you wouldn't do this to your neighbor because that's not a loving thing to do, and I wouldn't want to do that because I see that we're the same or we're one or I, I love you, I care about you. So the esoteric tradition is, is in its simplest form is just that. It's like a here's how we behave on the outside and here's the reason why. Yeah. And then, as you said, we, it gets encoded in myth. So on the outside you get like a story like the Jesus story. Just believe it. Mm-hmm. just trust in it and believe it and believe the teachings and do what he what he tells you and then when you're ready it's like okay this is what it really means this is the deep teaching this is how you can really get the understanding and then you can realize that you are the christ you can find the christ in yourself mm-hmm. which is this, this deeper esoteric thing and then as you said what's happened in history is that those things which i think in the time of the hermetica were much more um uh, probably in balance with each other especially with the christian tradition um, because because the what happened to historical quirks really the, 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 because Christianity was picked up by the Roman Empire, which is essentially a fascist empire. Yeah, they enforced the outside rules right. and completely lost the inner meaning. I mean, not completely because it's always still there, but but that became so. These two were suddenly in opposition, and then those people that were coming along, going, "No, no, no, you're wrong," it was like a get rid of them right because it came about power and rules and doing this and the right thing and, and you see the same thing happening in islam and you know it's it, like you said it's common right and then and then these two things which should be really ideally working together become enemies yes yes um so there's a lot we can dive into there obviously <laughs> yeah um, a few thousand years of history yeah. <laughs> uh, but i mean one thing that i think you know, struck me about your work on the Hermetica is yeah. I had this idea that I think a lot of people share that the Hermetica is somehow inscrutable, maybe even nonsensical. It's about, you know, alchemy and like turning dross into gold. And, you know, basically that is the exoteric teaching, right? Like that is the outer teaching. But really, you know, this goes back to the Egyptian prophet who became a god, basically, Thoth, who, I guess, you know, he was responsible for science, medicine, um, religion, architecture. I guess he's credited with being the architect of the Great Pyramid. Yeah, he's everything. (laughs) Right. And so the Greeks were like babies compared to the Egyptians, right? They revered them. And so they adopted a lot of this. And, you know, they called Thoth Hermes, Trimagestus, the man who is not not once, not twice, but three times great. Um, And so, like, how did this all happen? Like, why doesn't the Hermetica get its due? Like, why is it viewed as something that is... Well, I I think because, you know, because the truth is, Gary, you're right. I mean, a lot of it does seem to be inscrutable and strange and ancient or, and the the Gnostic texts, the Christian Gnostic texts are very similar. You know, I I read people something from the gospel of Thomas and they think, wow, that's great. And then they go and read other Gnostic gospels and think, but this is gobbledygook. You know what? It is. It's a bit like, a bit like wandering into a new age bookshop now. 
yeah. and thinking, you know, having read some brilliant book and going in there and just going, but hang on, most of this is rubbish. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's like, of course. Yeah. And it's the same then as it is now. It, you know, just because it's old doesn't make it good. It's just yeah. a library of books. So the first thing is the Hermetica's written over a very long period of time. Most of it is is, is much uh, written in, in the quite late, really. It's not ancient, in, in, as ancient as people think. It's kind of um, people writing it later, claiming it's old, yeah. um, which a lot of which happened. And not, not, not to deceive people, but as a way of honouring, a bit like channeling in a way, you know, a bit like I'm honouring Hermes by putting in his name and not claiming it's me. And so these... And and you have to pick and choose. You have to find the good bits. So what we did with when I, I worked on a book on the Hermetica with my friend and co-author Peter Gandhi, and what we did was go look, look, let's find the really good bits, mm-hmm. um, and let's bring those out because they're valuable, and 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 it deserves honouring just because because the good bits had such a big impact on on Western culture. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you go back to the Renaissance, which is credited as the the pivoting point is that it, why is it called the rebirth it's the rebirth of the pagan spirit right and and they were bringing plato in and aristotle of course but plato especially and then they found the hermetic texts and and the medicis who were who were funding all of this just went look stop plato translations do the hermetica this was what they were looking for right was the hermetic texts and they were translated and I think there's a good argument for saying they gave birth to science mm-hmm. because, you know, Copernicus and people like this, they were, they were deeply influenced by these texts. And, and, and so they should be much, much better known and better respected than they are. But as, but because there is, you know, alchemy, alchemy gave us chemistry. Yeah. And alchemy is just alchem from the black. And, it, and it's really from Egypt. Right. This is from, this is the wisdom from Egypt. And it's about trans finding the gold within the within the dross within the, the within the lead, and that's a spiritual transformation. Right, and so it's really about the inner alchemy, right? I mean, that's well, kind of what gets lost. It's both. You know, mystics like me want to go. It's about the inner alchemy, but yeah. the fact is, it was about both. It was also oh. about magic. So that's paralogical. It was, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, they and 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 a lot of alchemists. I I know alchemists now who still think this and um, who. Who see? Who it's actually more subtle. I met a fantastic alchemist. Uh, it, it was. It, it, I can't tell you about him because it's kind of a secret thing. But and what he what he really got me to see was that it wasn't like oh, it's really just about transforming yourself and the whole turning it into gold thing is just a foolish outer thing. Huh. For him, it was oh no no no, it's a magical act. And in learning how to actually perform this magical act, you transform yourself. Because unless you are transformed when you do it, the magical act doesn't work. I see. And I think that's fundamentally how they saw it. That it was these two aspects of it were the same thing. Huh. So there was some reality to the exoteric teaching there, or, or, or the exoteric. It was certainly was important. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, I mean, this gentleman did show me gold that he had created i don't know if he had um but maybe he had um life is strange um but certainly i think they 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 saw it as both it was uh-huh. and and or there was or 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 the the, the very process of going through it and, and also just it's important never to miss out this to go back in history is difficult yeah for us we look back at all that paraphernalia you know we take 
chemistry for granted. Mm -hmm. And we use it in everything. We couldn't be doing this without an understanding of chemistry. And they didn't have that. So can you imagine how exciting it was to be putting things in Bunsen, not Bunsen burners, but you know uh. what I mean? The thing they had was became a Bunsen burner, uh. putting things in crucibles and boiling them. and do it. It's like, wow, that's exciting stuff. Yeah. You're getting, they're looking at what's the nature of matter and how is that linked to spirit? And, and I'm sure that was a transformatory experience for them. Yeah. Well, so one of the other things that I was struck by uh, in, in terms of the good bits of the Hermetica that you picked out and translated um, <laughs> were some of the similarities, not only to later religious texts, but also even to modern scientific theory. I mean, there's, you know, there is one book that kind of begins with, you know, there's a light emerging from the darkness, you know, the dark, restless waters, which, you know, is kind of reminiscent of the Big Bang. And then you have other sections where, you know, time begins with the word, or I, I know maybe the logos would be the Greek translation, which is very similar to the Genesis story. Um, and then you have this idea of the good, or I guess you translated it as goodness and beauty, which is then later replicated in Plato's work, you know, where sort of the, um, you know, the, the state of gnosis is characterized by the good, you know, the, the good is primary. Um, and even the word for God that they use, which is atum, I guess, I mean, it sounds like Adam a little bit, right? And I don't know if that's coincidence or, or what. I think but... a lot of these words have the same basic, um, the, you know, it's like our man and our moon and yeah. atum. Um, I think they're playing with 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 like Advaita, not two, is I think one of the underlying themes. Um, and, and you're right, they influence each other. I mean, it's important to realize that with the Hermetica, because it because a lot of this stuff, you know, it, it, it comes it's early stuff and late stuff all thrown together, is that all of those traditions you mentioned, they're all influencing each other. Yeah. Um, and there's an interfertilization going because they're all part of the same thing. Right. Which is why I fundamentally see it as one Gnostic current. Okay. Again, a bit like today, you know, you look at all the different things that are going on in the world of spirituality, and they're all influencing each other, and they're all different, and they're, but they're all kind of finding places where they can meet, or mm. or defining themselves by their difference, but also by their similarities, mm. and that's going on in the ancient world. It's a very fertile, gnostic, inter, inter eclectic atmosphere. Right. And so we're kind of simplifying and skipping over a lot of territory here, but basically, you. You have kind of these myths um, that sort of originate with Hermes Trimagestus, and they kind of go through the Greeks, Plato, Plotinus, and they find their way into um, the Jews of, you know, around the time of Christ. And you have this theory in this book um, that has not made you very popular on Amazon.com. And, you know, this is very interesting because your books all get four and four and a half star reviews on Amazon, which is incredible because there is a whole universe of people that are very triggered by your work that literally give you one star reviews. And so that means that the rest of them have to all be five stars. Um, but you have this idea or this theory that uh, Christ is a myth. He was not an actual historical person. Um, and you think the same thing of Simon Peter, I believe, and all four of the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, but you do hold that Paul is a real historical person. Is that correct? Yes. So can you just tell us a bit about all of that? 
Oh, okay. That's, um, I mean, I, I'll have to do it very. Yeah, um, no, that's that's lots of there, but because um... um, obviously it's a big subject. Yeah. yeah. So, so major. This was our my international bestseller with Peter Gandhi, the yeah. Jesus Mysteries. Um, that came from a very long study of Gnosticism and the ancient pagan mystery schools. So, not specifically the Hermetic stuff, not just. But just like the whole of the ancient world is covered by these mystery schools, these initiation schools, and at the center of them are various myths, and a very common one is, is, is of a dying and resurrecting son of God. And the basic um, place we ended up, we didn't start there, it was a shock for me, it wasn't, there was no agenda, was, oh, the, what the Jesus, what the Jesus uh, Gnostic school originally was, was a mystery school. And at its heart, there was this myth of a guy who was the son of God, just like in the ancient traditions. He had 12 disciples, just like in the pagan traditions. And he dies and comes back from the dead. And uh, he does things like changing water into wine. And, and all of this, these are myths that have pre-existed for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, going back to Dionysus in Greece, Cyrus and Horus, um, and others, Mithras, Adonis, Attis, lots of them. And Jesus or Joshua, as it as the um, in the Jesus is the Greek, um, seems to be another one. And we've got this idea that he's a real man, even though if you look at the story, it's clearly mythic <clears throat> because of the way that the West has seen this story. But if you go back, the, if you go if you go find the earliest Christians, they seem to be the Gnostics to me. And the Gnostics are very clear that this is a myth, and it's about discovering the Christ in you. So once you get that, then it's, you start, it's not about dismissing the, the Jesus story, quite the opposite. It's about going, wow, this is a really deep, really, really deep story. And if you understand it, it's got immense power. It's not just about believing that someone came and did it all for you. That's the exoteric, the outer. That's the, that's the outer teachings, believe. The inner teachings are gnosis, know. That and I what think you is know the most, who it, you are. Yes, sorry. That I think is the most interesting part of it is that your um, belief that he was not a real historical person, and this is myth, does not diminish the power of the story at all. Uh, if anything, it, 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 it amplifies it. Totally. I mean, one of the great ironies, you know, people don't think these things through very much. Um, because one of the great ironies is if, if, you, if you do believe that there was a real historical Jesus, well, everyone's got a different one. You know, if you, you know nice Quaker pacifists have a nice Quaker pacifist Jesus. Um, if you're a Muslim, you think Jesus was another prophet like Muhammad. If, you, if you're a Buddhist, you think he was a Buddha. If you're a Hindu, you think he was an avatar. If you're a politico, you think he was a political leader. If you were a you know, Jew, you think he was a rabbi. And, you know, everyone's got a different Jesus. Well, the fact is, your Jesus probably isn't the right one. The person that I think Jesus is, he might not be like that. He might be a Jesus I don't like at all. And you have to face that if you're going to really think it through. But where, when you realize it's a mythic thing, when you realize, as Carl Jung said, that it's an archetype of the self, then your Jesus is your Jesus, and that's just fine. That's how it should be, because Jesus is an image through which you relate to God. It's a, it's a face through which you can approach something which has no face. It's a personal way into a relationship with the one. And that's what, that's what the ancient polytheistic tradition was always about, all these different faces of the faceless. And, and Jesus is one of them. Uh, and I think it's beautiful. And, and, and it's just as powerful today as it ever was, which is why when people have near-death experiences, they meet Jesus. Of course they do. Unless they're Buddhists, then they meet Buddha. <laughs> but but <laughs> and, kind, of, kind of the crux of it, though, is that 
you know, heaven or salvation is not something that you're rewarded with later for good behavior. It's really an immediate realization, a state of gnosis that you That's can have gnosis. right here, right now. So the outer teachings are be good and you'll go to heaven when you die. And the inner, inner teachings are heaven and hell is right here and right now. And that will also be true when you die. It will also be here right now. Yes. And heaven or hell is, are you in a state of love or are you in a state of separation and lostness? Yes. And if you're in a state of being lost in separateness only, you will be in hell. Yes. And if you're in a state of oneness and love, you will be in heaven. Yes. And the great, the, why the Jesus story is such a, I mean, what a story. I mean, and then at the end, you know, you've got this being who just, who, who, who teaches what must be the most confrontational and beautiful teaching ever will love your enemies and then in the story he's actually being tortured to death by his enemies mm -hmm. and he loves them and forgives them and that is a teaching of such profundity we haven't begun to catch up with it two thousand years later yeah nowhere near i mean it's just so deep what, what, do you, what do you what do you say to it it's just so i i think it's a beautiful thing to get this this ancient understanding back go you know this is great and then just to finish it, the thing you're saying about the people it's like so once you realize it's a myth then you realize oh well all the characters are, are this is why there's no historical evidence for any of them none mm. none i mean I, i'm just going to say that and people will jump around who disagree with me going what about this what about this and you just need to read the jesus mysteries because we go through it all mm. and it re there really is no historical actual evidence apart from stuff which has been obviously fabricated mm -hmm. because we're dealing with a myth and so it's a bit like going oh there was no hamlet and someone going, oh, there was no Hamlet. Well, there was a real Ophelia, though, right? And it's like, no, mm. no, no, there was no Hamlet or Ophelia. <laughs> yeah. No, none of the people in Hamlet are real. What, yeah. None of them? No. So where did it come from? Well, it was written by a genius called William Shakespeare. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, the Gospels. Yeah, they were written by geniuses, people like Basilides, people like Valentinus, people who were these great Gnostic masters, mm -hmm. created this incredible myth. And then one of those great Gnostic masters was someone called Paul. Mm -hmm. And Paul is the great hero of the Gnostics. And the reason that he's got such a bad rap um, is that there's two Pauls. There's a very early Paul, who's the earliest documents we have are, are the letters of Paul, way before the Gospels. And he talks nothing about historical Jesus. He says it's all about the, the, you know, realizing the Christ in you. That's what it's about. And then about 200 years later, we get these fake letters of Paul in which he attacks Gnostics and tells women to shut up and wear hats and God knows what. Um, and, and so he's confusing because we've got, there's a deliberate attempt to co-opt Paul into the agenda of what will, will become the Roman church. Right, um, the and then the literates take hold yeah. of him. And, that, and again, this is not our work. This is the work of other scholars, which we, which we draw on here, um, which, so I think there's good evidence that there is a real Paul. You have to get the, there's a fake Paul too, but you can get around to the real Paul. And he's a Gnostic, and and his and he he's a his message is about love and realizing the the Christ in you. And the Christ in you is just what the Hindus mean by the Atman in you, or the Buddhists by the Buddha nature in you. It's mm -hmm. the same thing we discussed in the last podcast. When you find your deepest being, it's one with all being, and that's the Christ. When you find the deep being, it's one with all being. Mm -hmm. And so to kind of follow the historical thread again, Gnosticism thrives for some 400 years, roughly until the Library of Alexandria is destroyed, right? So Alexander conquers this world. Um, 
you know, there's, it's a time of tremendous, um, it's, it, it's like a melting pot where all these traditions yeah. kind of come together and they they sort of physically reside in this library at Alexandria. And they have a common language. They have a common language. Um, very much like today, where, you know, everyone speaks English, everyone was speaking Greek. And it's really interesting, you know, because all of, all of the Christian texts are all written in Greek. They're none of them in Hebrew. Yeah. And, and they're written by people who are, I don't think they're even in, in Israel. They're in Egypt. I think they're in Alexandria, most likely. Right. Right. Um, and so the Holy Roman Empire, you know, they, be, they sort of adopt Catholicism. It's a literalist interpretation. Um, they burn the library, they suppress Gnosticism, it basically goes underground, the Dark Ages set in, um, and Gnosticism kind of survives re really more in the Arab world in this intervening period, right? And so yeah. that kind of gives rise to things like the Sufi. Yeah. Um, and then we don't... And not just the Sufis, I mean, the whole of Arab civilization. Yeah. It's a staggering fact that from nothing, from Bedouin tribes... You suddenly get this, these, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, and these, this whole culture erupts, and it's because they've got not, you know, the whole pagan wisdom mm -hmm. has been forced out of the West, which then collapses intellectually, and takes off in in the Islamic Empire, and it suddenly it turns into a great culture with mathematics and science and yeah. everything. And we're we're like you said, we're heading off into the dark, dark ages, ages. Yeah. <laughs> on um, this side. And so this. Uh, this tradition doesn't really come back to the Western world until, I guess, 1438, right, where they rediscover Plato's lost works and they're introduced in Italy, right? And this kind of kicks yep. off the uh, Renaissance. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's interesting because we tend to think that the modern world, especially the Western world, you know, it's built on Plato and the Republic and it goes back, you know, kind of to him in a more or less unbroken line Really, it, it was wiped off the face of the earth or kind of underground for 2,000 years. Yeah, for a long time. Long time. Yeah, certainly a 1,000 years there. Yeah, 1,000 um, years yeah, maybe. Yeah it, yeah, it did. Of course, its influence was still there because it yeah. was embedded in what had come from it. So yes. it didn't know that it was. Um, and and it must have been strange for them to, to, to find these ancient statues and monuments and just think, who were these people? Right. I mean, you, you know, that they, they created such beautiful things. And, yeah, you're right. And then with the Renaissance, we got the rebirth of this, this wisdom. And, and you can see, I mean, look at the, you know, it's a, it's a thing people often miss, but you suddenly got the, all these beautiful paintings of these pagan deities. And, mm. and, and you've got people like Botticelli painting well, Venus and calling it a, I love this phrase, he called it a talisman of occult radiance. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is not just a painting. This is this is a doorway. Yeah. The idea is you're going to look at this talisman and walk through and connect with Venus, Aphrodite. The, you know, these are talismanic. They're they're stepping right back into the deep esoteric tradition. And at the very center of it, you've got people like Michelangelo and of course Leonardo da Vinci, who was the um, the head of a Platonic school going on. You know, he was he was part of that very much. And so I guess one of my takeaways from this is that we take far too much for granted. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's not a given that this teaching, that this knowledge is always with us. It has not always been with us. No. It comes and it goes. So, um, and it gets suppressed by people who take things literally. 
Um, and we still face that today. You know, we have people that deny science, that want to vilify the other, people that they take to be different from them. Um, we have people that deny facts, you know, climate change, you know, all of these things um, that want to suppress ideas that are different from their own. And so it's very, very sobering thought. It is, Gary. right? You, you look back and you go, well, you know, we look at the ancient Greek culture and we think, oh, the Greeks, you know, they gave us this and democracy and maths and philosophy, and they did. But the real moment where it was just like it all just <sighs> blossomed was a few decades. And then it was crushed by authoritarians. Socrates was put to death. It was crushed. Uh, and it was just a few decades. It, it, and then it went out and, of course, it changed the world. But it, it was not very long. Uh, the Renaissance, you know, we look back. It, it wasn't like it happened and then, yes, it was suppressed. It was a few decades. Uh, and then, you know, it managed to come through. I would say through since the Second World War, especially the 60s period, there was a, a, a similar period of mm -hmm. immense flowering of individuality, creativity, and deep mysticism. Right. And so far, we're still hanging in there. Yeah. So we've, done, we've already done better than they did. Right. But like you said, we should not take it for granted that this – the fact that we can have this conversation and not be a fear of our lives yeah. is, a, is a precious thing. Right. But it does beg the question of, you know, how should we be with literalists today, the people that kind of are descended from this line of thinking? You know, what should our approach to them be? Um, because I think history tells us that, you know, it can't all be loving and accepting, right? They will crush you. Um, and so while we're all individuals and all one, and you know, I would argue that we share the same ground, um, there is always kind of this thought in the back of my mind, well, yeah, that's all well and good, but what about these assholes? You know, how should we... <laughs> 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 you know, what, what are, how, as a practical matter, how are we supposed to be with them? Yeah, there you go. There you go. I can't remember whether we talked about it in this podcast or the one we'd had before, but yeah, this this paralogical, the, the wisdom thing. Yeah. So they're like, well, obviously, you know, love. We have to meet it with love. But then how do you meet it with love yeah. wisely? How do you do that? I I don't know that they, we there is a straightforward answer to that. I think it, it changes all the time. But you know, one of the one of the, I mean, certainly when I when I when we wrote the Jesus mysteries, and well, you know, we didn't get any death threats, but I had an awful lot of after death threats, where you know, <laughs> the, 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 when we die, terrible things are going to happen to yeah. us, and, and so we did have a lot of you know, a bit of abuse and all of that, and people you know threw things at us at bookstores and things, and my feeling was I just needed to go look, 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 where we can agree with each other surely is that we need to love our enemies, so let's start there. And I think there is a there we can you know reach out as much as possible, and um, and then of course when you're dealing with people who are so entrenched in it, in like obviously you know you're not going to get much with that if you're dealing with ISIS or or some of the Islamic fundamentalist groups that are around or some of the Christian ones too. But 
And then I think you just need, that's the paralogical thing. You need to be able to stand strong in what's right and, and resist it. Um, and, and that's when, you know, the being nice, lovingly nice, that's easy. But being lovingly strong, that's hard. Yeah. That's hard. Well, that, this has been a great conversation. Um, we've gone on for coming on two hours now. <laughs> Anything else we should cover before we say our oh, We've covered so much and there yeah. is so much still we could cover. And it's been a fascinating conversation. But I think we've, um, I think we've done well to yeah. explore what we've explored. Yeah, well, uh, Tim, thanks again for your time. If you folks liked it, uh, give us a like, share it up, leave us a comment. We'll try to get back to you. Check out Tim's books on timfreak.com or amazon.com. He's actually coming through uh, California and Colorado here in March. Uh, so check that out too. And, and I'm coming to do a whole retreat in, uh, in June at the Omega Institute oh. in New York, New York State. Excellent. So yeah. I look for that. And uh, thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>